0: Welcome to Move the Needle, the human performance podcast with your hosts, Hunter Eisenhower and Mike Sullivan. Shout out to Lumen Sports for sponsoring this episode. Lumen Sports is your digital headquarter for athletic performance. It's an Australian-made company that centralizes athlete management, team communications, scheduling, data visualizations, and features third-party integrations to save valuable time and elevate decision-making. Lumen is trusted by pro sports teams, colleges, high schools, and high-performance centers. Lumen is an affordable solution that seamlessly connects coaches, athletes, medical staff and operation teams. You can download a free demo today to find out why teams around the world choose Lumen Sports. Today on the podcast we have Jesse Green with the Pittsburgh Penguins formerly of the Sacramento Kings where we work together a wealth of knowledge and we worked together for a short amount of time before he transitioned to the Penguins but I learned more in those whatever it was month to two months than I learned in a lot of other a lot of other jobs. So I'm glad that we were able to get them on and chat a little bit. Jesse, give us a, just a brief background of where you've been, what you have done, um, and then we'll go from there.
1: Yeah, for sure. Well, firstly, thanks for having me, guys. I'm big fan of the podcast. Big fan of the guests you bring on. So hopefully, I can uh, contribute a little bit to your listeners. But uh, quick background: um, Australian, uh, grew up, born and raised in Australia went to college on the Gold Coast in Australia, Bachelor of Sports Science, Uh, did a research year following that in the form of an honours year. During that honours year, uh, that was also a placement at the Brisbane Lions Australian Rules Football Club, so in the AFL there. Uh, In multiple roles, kind of that that assistant that helps out with nutrition on the gym floor, a little bit of sports science, a little bit of return to performance work. Uh, So that was really good. It was there for four years and that culminated in a position kind of the strength conditioning coordinator for their academy system so working with boys and girls under 18s all the way down to under 14s which was uh which was really fun uh that finished in 2017 from there went to the university of louisville uh in kentucky which was uh drinking through a fire hose a little bit uh was there for just over a year 14 months in kind of like a 50 50 sports science and strength and conditioning capacity uh, and then from there uh, that was 2017 and 18. And then from there, went to Sacramento Kings in the NBA. Um, was there in multiple different capacities as a performance analyst, so pure sports science, all the way up to a bit of a mix of both, overseeing both areas, which is great. Uh, and then just finished my first season, about to enter my second season with the Pittsburgh Penguins in a similar role overseeing performance and sports science.
0: Awesome. I I want to start with – and. I put this question first talking about your time with the NBA and then we'll transition to your time with the Penguins. And it's funny to me because you work with the Kings for four years. I was there for a year um, in the G League and NBA side of things. And it was just so interesting to me when I would like talk to people or go to conferences, just how much like intrigue there is around working in the NBA. And I'm sure there's a certain level of that in the NHL, but I haven't experienced that obviously. And I think it would just be really interesting for our listeners to kind of like take us through your time there um, maybe like just a brief touch on your, each year, cause I know that you transition to different roles, what it looked like from a day to day, kind of what your experiences were with that in that space, because of how much intrigue there is around that, um, area of the field. Just, if you real quick, if you don't mind also within that answer,
2: I would be interested to know if, um, how you, not only how that role kind of evolved, but then also how you kind of viewed how the NBA evolved in terms of sports science.
1: Yeah, so I'll answer the first part of the question and then I'll, I'll finish with your side, Mike. But I guess first and foremost, I think a lot of the intrigue around the NBA and I guess the inside operations of the NBA is because it's such a massive business, a massive worldwide now business. Uh, I had to keep reminding myself constantly that you're in the entertainment industry, not, not necessarily the performance industry, right? Like if we, were, if we were, you know, the three of us were to sit down, we are going to create a new league, and we're going to make it as much about performance as possible. We're going to optimize performance in every way possible. You wouldn't make an 82-game schedule across the entire United States playing three and a half games a week on average. You just wouldn't do that. So you've got to constantly remember you're in an entertainment industry and you're going to try and layer performance initiatives on top of that. But in terms of how my role evolved in the four years, it, it evolved quite a bit actually. I started off um, as a performance analyst, so pure sports science, no strength conditioning, no other... Uh, oversight, really, Um, there wasn't a whole lot being done from a sports science standpoint when I got there. So a lot of it was, you know, a lot of the boring side of things, but the absolutely necessary side of sports science and and data analytics and engineering for that matter, but setting up databases, um, creating cloud platforms, um, setting up the AMS system so we could automate as much as we could down the line. And that was pretty much the entire first year. Uh, And then from there, the second year was similar but uh, we wanted to build up our sports science program, so We started to bring in uh, an intern. We started to collaborate a lot more with the, uh, the basketball analysts, working with you know, more of the basketball specific information. Um, my role changed slightly to a head of sports science, so overseeing the program. Uh, and then from there to the director of sports science. And then we had our uh, head of performance leave um, and they remained in house. And I kind of um, moved into a, a dual role of director of performance and sports science overseeing, uh, a couple of strength and conditioning coaches some sports science interns. And that was kind of the progression from year one uh, to year four up until I left. But uh, another thing about the NBA as well, I think it's worth mentioning is that while I was there in my four years, the roster completely turned over minus one player. Uh, the staff completely turned over from a coaching staff and a front office staff minus you know, an equipment manager here and there or maybe some team logistics staff. So the building completely changed just the vibe of the building, the culture of the building, Um, had four coaches in four years. So that was interesting when, you know, not only do you have new coaches and new personalities, but new approaches as well, right? I think it's always a valuable process for us as support staff or performance staff to try and match our approach or to try and embed our approach and, you know, complement the approach of the coach. But when you have a new approach, a new coach every year, um, you're constantly going through that evolution process for how we can complement this, whether it's the style of play or whether it's the culture or what they expect of the players and so on and so forth. Um, so, yeah, not a lot of time and resources spent prior to getting there, but that was, um, you know, that was kind of what was culminating up in those four years was building up the, uh, the back end of that sports science program and, and leave it in a better place than, than when I got there.
2: How familiar were you coming into uh sacramento with the idea of it being like an entertainment industry as opposed to a performance industry were there i'm sure there were growing pains as you started
1: yeah absolutely i mean i was self-admittedly not really aware at all of the i guess the the magnitude in which that entertainment side of things drives the operations like it's just some of the travel demands some of the the scheduling pieces um, the back-to-backs, the travel, the five games in seven days—just those kinds of things. Like, you just got to sit back and go, "Look, we're we're going to try and get through this period." Obviously, by that fifth game in the seventh day, performance is far from optimal. Um, but we can't really do much about that. But how can we mitigate some of the deleterious effects that those previous four games can kind of can kind of place on those players? But it was also, and I haven't even mentioned this yet, but equally as much, getting to trying to relate to the demographic of the NBA player as well. Um for me an Australian, you know, male worked in rugby prior, worked in Australian rules football, completely different vibe. I mean it's a third roster size, the money is, you know, 10x, 11x times what these guys are earning in Australia. So just trying to I guess relate to these players in a certain way, build trust with these players in a certain way and you know, kind of kind of describe to them or kind of um, build that relationship and show them that there is some value that I can provide to, to their career and their performance was, you know, a two, three, sometimes four year process with
0: certain players. I think that's a really good point. And I think that it's a point that some people might not even think about when they think about working in that space is the amount of autonomy that the NBA like allows its players. Cause it's a player's league and coming from the college space to where like Everybody trained four days a week for an hour at this time with the team. Like when I got to that space, it was interesting to kind of like even have to maximize the relationship building process more to get guys to buy into what you're trying to do. Because if they're not like, there's not a ton you can do. Um, But one thing that I thought that was really interesting that you said that you laid out was just how different your years were there from year to year pretty much every year you had a new head coach, a new staff and a new position. So it's almost like you had four new jobs all under, well, you did, you have different titles, but all in the same organization, which I think is like crazy.
1: Yeah. It's kind of that old adage, right? Of, you know, if you have 20 years of experience, is it one by 20 or 20 by one? Right. And it certainly felt like you know, four by one separate years of experience, which I think is um is culminated in a in a better experience for me.
0: Yeah. take us through just a quick like day to day of what your day would look like working for the Kings. Maybe on like practice day and then, practice day and then a game day.
1: Yeah, so a typical game day, uh, practice day. Sorry, if it was a you know a day not following a game, we typically practice at eleven, um, roll into the building around eight o'clock or so. We would meet as a staff, figure out any return to performance cases, make sure they're mapped out, uh, any, look at the, uh, the data from the game prior and how that compares to the previous week, two weeks, whatever window we'd be looking at, see if there's any flags or anything we need to address either from a, an additional load that we need to apply to certain players or reduce the load for certain players. And that was, that was definitely a process as well that we got to in the probably the third or fourth year. Uh, and then we would meet as a, as a strength staff, figure out what the plan was for the day in that respect and just get everything set up. So there's no surprises for anyone uh, when it starts to get hectic, when the players roll in. So we'd usually meet there from eight to eight you know nine o'clock, get the lift set up. Uh, and then players would start rolling in around you know, nine, nine o'clock or so, get their breakfast. They would get their treatment times, go from the treatment table into the gym. Um, if they had more of a, Traditional lift, we would get that going. If they had more of a a warm-up style uh, lift, then we would complete that. And then they would go onto the court where they would get uh, a designated court time pre-practice. So between, uh, I think it was between 9.45 and say 10.45, there would be different court times allocated to different players where they could get their shots up, work on their handle, whatever their development coach had planned for them that day. Uh, And then from there, we would have uh, team film at 10.45, uh, and then practice would start around 11. And usually that team film would creep out further and further and further and further. Um, then following practice, we would have our post-practice shooting groups, so after practice guys getting additional shots, and then the post-practice lift group as well. Some players tend to gravitate towards their um, towards their strength training following practice, uh, especially practices in-season. They're, they're not typically too much, so it's, it's an extended warm-up for a lot of those players especially the veteran players. They typically use that as a warm-up and then while they're warm, they'll come in and complete their strength training. Um, And we definitely gravitate a little bit towards, you know, some of Boves, Dan Boves stuff with the quadrant system and, you know, utilizing different forms of training in accordance and aligning stresses with what they did on the court. Um, That was certainly helpful. And then following following practice and following those lift groups, we would meet again as a, as a strength staff or perhaps an entire staff or perhaps myself, head of medical and and the VP at the time. And we would kind of summarize the day, get ahead of the next day and kind of rinse and repeat. Man. Yep. Sounds
0: great. Now t- take us through a quick game day. Like what does that look like?
1: Yeah. So game day, much, much bigger. Obviously, if we had a shoot around that morning, it would kind of be that exact um, – be that exact process I just outlined at practice day, but it'd be a, a 10 or an 11 o'clock shoot around. Shoot around being a, a 25 to 30 minute shoot around, basically just getting up and down, getting warm, running through set pieces, um, first play of the game, that kind of thing. Uh, we would have a couple guys typically, if they were um, not going to receive heavy game minutes or many game minutes at all, that they would do some supplemental scrimmage which we as a performance staff and a sports science staff played uh, a heavy part in, in terms of that dose and how frequently we would apply that dose. Uh, And then players would typically grab their meal and then they would get out of the building by 12, 12.30. Uh, And then that kind of time between 12.30 and four o'clock for a seven o'clock game is kind of, kind of our time. We would, Typically scrimmage or we would get up and down and play fives as a staff or we would lift or we would prepare or we would go home for a quick break. That kind of time is, is your own. And then four o'clock for a seven o'clock game is when players start coming back in for their pregame preparations. Um, every player has to eat, get their treatment time, do their warm-up slash activation. Um, and they also typically have a, a quick little meeting with their, with their coach. Those four elements, for most players, it goes in that order. Um, however, some players will eat and then they'll do their court time and then they'll come do their activation. Some guys will eat as their last kind of thing before they run out. But that pre-game time was was very, very hands-on, very busy. We, in my first couple of years, we embedded some sports science assessments uh, within that pre-game window. We then progressed away from that for a number of different reasons. Uh, and then the game would obviously tip at seven typical game would finish around uh between nine and 9 30 9 45 depending on the game and then following that we would have our post-game lift if um, that certain player or whichever group of players uh that was in their schedule that we would post-game lift with those guys they would get their meal and then we'd typically be home i usually walk in the door around 11 11 15 something like that
2: all day full day yep i have like three follow-up questions to all that um and we can just kind of go whatever order. Sure. First one is just, and this can, either one of you guys can answer this one. And I've heard from different people of just working in professional sports in the NBA, like the NFL, that as opposed to like high level coaching, it really just becomes like high level organization. Like you just you, you don't coach that much as opposed to, not that you can't coach that much. It's just that you end up just like organizing guys as efficiently as possible, as opposed to coaching them. Um, so that's one question I had. And then I also want to revisit um, that initial question I had for you, Jesse, of just um, within those four years at Sacramento, just from being able to take a step at the landscape of sports science, kind of growing involved within the league as a whole. But you guys can kind of answer those as you want.
1: Yeah, sure. Sorry I missed that second question. I'll definitely hit on that here in a sec. But in terms of your – your comment around or your question around organization versus coaching, I mean, you can kind of, they complement each other because if you have poor organization and you have two players rolling at 10 o'clock and then another player at 10.07 and then another two players at 10.15 and then another two players at 10.20, like your ability to effectively coach is mitigated significantly because you're constantly trying to set things up and you're trying to organize the equipment, organize the groups. But if you say, okay, we've got four guys at 10, we got four guys at 10.30, much, much easier to coach, much, much easier to coach. So I wouldn't say that there isn't as much coaching. Um, Rarely would we introduce a stimulus that's extremely novel. Like we wouldn't flip exercise too heavily. There'd be subtle variations here and there, maybe an implement change here and there, but we wouldn't change a whole lot throughout the season um, unless it was more of a developmental player. But for the high minute guys, um, we maintain a pretty similar similar stimulus from a weight room side of things, just because they are already trying to, you only have so much adaptive energy, right? And we don't want to spend too much or effectively any of that on, you know, okay, we're going to go from a trap bar squat to a front squat. Is that juice really worth the squeeze? If you're just trying to hold on to strength and maintain that residual, why don't we just stick with the trap bar because it's a familiar exercise for them. We're going to mitigate any soreness that might arise from a new exercise. So, from that standpoint, yes, the coaching was minimal, but certainly still coaching taking place with our developmental guys because we could really up the volume and the intensity uh, with those players.
0: And then, Hans, yeah, sure.
1: uh, I'm not sure if you've got any, any comments additional to that.
0: No, that was great. You can roll into that next question that Mike had for you.
1: Yeah, so in terms of how sports science kind of evolved in the four years, I think uh, probably in the five years prior to me getting there. So like kind of the, the early... 2010 to 2015 range there's a lot of teams that kind of pioneered that Sacramento um, we weren't one of those early pioneers there I mean OKC we're doing a lot uh, from the jump there they got a really solid sports science and performance staff there um, but I think it certainly evolved in the four years I was there and I think that was uh, displayed by just the number of positions that's that arose in the NBA I mean could almost assume that all 30 NBA teams these days have someone in that realm of sports science, whether it's a third strength coach that's also doing the sports science or someone just purely dedicated to that. Um, you could almost say that every team in the league has that someone in that position in completing those tasks and responsibilities. Whereas when I got in the league, um, just got by going city to city and speaking to different staff, that wasn't the case when I got in. So um, certainly evolved for better or for worse, obviously. Um, but yeah, it's it certainly evolving and continuing to evolve for sure.
0: Staying in that same kind of realm of sports science, I'm interested to hear, looking back on your time with the Kings and being heavily involved with the sports science aspect the entire time, what were some of the most like impactful projects or things that you think uh, that you implemented that you think helped the organization the most? And I think that Two of the things that I took from you specifically that I that I really like and I use last year and continue to use this year is your daily difficulty index and your loaded X need stuff. If those aren't your if those aren't your answers to the question, then take it wherever you want. But those are two things maybe you could touch on and just explain those things. And then um, if those aren't what you think are your most impactful, go with what you uh, would rank as as up there.
1: Yeah. Sure. So. Off the top, those two are not what I had in mind, but I can, I can describe those as well for sure. But what comes to mind, I think, was uh, the really deep, in-depth, deep dive analysis we did, and you were a part of this, of um, the CMJ analysis that we did, and then some other assessments as well. But I think not only from an impact standpoint, profiling prescribing and really understanding our players, but... It was also incredibly effective at bringing the staff together or the strength, conditioning, performance staff and the sports science staff for that matter, bringing them together and getting us on a sort of common language and a common understanding of, okay, this is player X. He's really good. He's got really good braking. He's got really poor propulsion, um, X, Y, Z, whatever that may be. For me, sports science equally as much about some of the X's and O's that I just mentioned, but it's about collaboration and making collaborative decisions and being able to switch in and out different players and making sure that that program still trends in the right direction. I think sports science for me is all about collaboration. Sports scientists for me are kind of facilitators. We facilitate information. We facilitate decision-making. I think that process on both sides of the coin, the really hard X's and O's in terms of the profiling of the, the CMJ and the biodynamics of that player, but also the collaborative side of things, bringing the staff together, collaborating and facilitating a better program. That was a big piece for me. And what else comes to mind as well, and I kind of mentioned it earlier, was the um, the collection, analysis, and prescription of the supplemental work for guys that weren't playing. Whether we had three guys and we were doing supplemental work before the game, whether we had six guys and we are doing 3v3 the day after a game, we monitored that pretty closely and we ensured that the dose was... Um, we went pretty deep, I should say, on how we monitored that and how we compared those scrimmages to games. Uh, and I think that really put those players, um, albeit in a pretty poor position, you obviously want to be playing in an NBA game, but to stay prepared for those games, I think we did a really good job there. And I think that was um, I think that was one of the biggest pieces we did. But to answer your question more specifically, the DDI um, or the Daily Difficulty Index, uh, essentially a... Uh, arbitrary number from one to 12 or one to 10, depending on the season uh, where we factored in travel duration, travel direction, East and West uh, game density, back to backs and home and away. And we factored in those five contextual factors that had nothing to do with the opponent had nothing to do um, with where they ranked or how good or bad they were as a basketball team, but just what are the demands on the players purely from a contextual scheduling standpoint how can we capture that, and then how can we kind of layer that in with our prescription or a recovery prescription or whatever we might be prescribing? How can we layer that in to get a better idea of okay, what are these guys up against before we even apply anything from a stimulus standpoint? Um, so that was that was useful. I, I do that with the penguins now as well, and it's I haven't systemized it uh, or implemented it as deep as I would like to yet, but. Again, just walking into the building. Okay, our DDI right now is a 10 out of a possible 12. We're playing a ton of games. Uh, we're probably just coming off a lot of travel. Maybe we should knock some of this stimulus out of the program and focus more on recovery. That was kind of the, the global theme of the DDI or the aim of the DDI.
0: The most impactful thing I think I learned from you was the counter and jump stuff. Because when I first got there, it was my first exposure to force plates. And I remember being like, oh, this is cool. Like, what was my jump height? And then you take me down this rabbit hole of like unimodal jumpers, bimodal secondary jumpers. And we just have this deep dive for it felt like weeks. And I think that reflecting back, it's something that I still use now because we are lucky enough to have plates. So that was definitely a very worthwhile deep dive. And to see the amount of work and presentations and um, analysis that you gave to those jumps was really impressive. And now
1: you're teaching me so it's come full circle.
0: Yeah, right. Well, now I want to dive into some
2: of that stuff, but I guess we can we can potentially set that for later. Um for the for the DDI stuff, is there an avenue of that where you do take into account the difficulty of opponent?
1: Yeah, so it was kind of the whole concept was born out of a paper by um, I think it was David Joyce and a few other collaborators done in uh, Australian football and Australian rugby. I think it was the first paper and they did factor in Uh, opponent, uh, and they kind of planned their week around, okay, if the DDI is really high, then we can maybe conserve a little bit of our week in terms of playing, you know, the Tuesday practice, Wednesday practice, Thursday practice. They can maybe back off a little bit to be fresher for that game because that game not only factored in the travel, but if it's a really difficult opponent, you might want to be fresher for that. But on the flip side as well, if you're playing maybe a poorer opponent, that's a really good window of opportunity to load throughout that week at the sake of maybe some freshness, but kind of taking that gamble of, okay, if we bank a really good week of training here and we can still beat this opponent, that's not very good. We can super compensate and we can, we can bank that training stimulus for the following week and, and months and so forth. Now that was born out of a system, an Australian sport. They play one game a week, typically a Saturday or a Sunday, sometimes a Friday. So you have a, a consistent microcycle to work with on a weekly basis. In the NBA, we didn't. And in the NHL, we don't. Hans, you would know, you guys have one. You typically play, what, Thursday, Saturday, or Friday, Sunday, something like that?
0: Yeah, once the once the conference schedule hits, it'll be fairly consistent with occasional, like, mix-in Tuesday games. The non-conference schedule is kind of all over the board because we'll go play in a tournament, and then we'll come back and play uh, just another opponent at home. So non-conference not the same density as the NBA or NHL, but the irregular, like the irregular schedule is still pretty consistent throughout that period of time. Sure. sure. So
2: are you going to use something like this Hunter for the season or the non-conference season?
0: I am. And I think that, well, that was one of my questions for you, Jesse, when it came to the DDI is like, like you just mentioned with like the Australian uh, rules football, like they play one game a week. It's on a Saturday. Like maybe there's travel on the day before, but the DDI, I feel like almost loses its um, ability to affect things when you have that predictable of a schedule. Would you agree with that? Like, it's probably more effective in a setting like the NBA where it's just chaos and so different every week to week. 100%.
1: Yeah. And that was the exact reason why we decided to take the uh, team – ability or how good the team was that we were playing. We decided to take that out of it because we're like, look, we've already got time zones and travel and all of these other things to worry about. We don't want the ability of the team that we're playing to maybe factor into that DDI. So we would change our decision, right? So let's say we go to um, Milwaukee after playing a really dense period of games. If they're a really tough side, okay, that's going to drive the DDI through the roof. That being said, though, let's say we do the exact same thing and we play um, Charlotte, who weren't great at the time that I was there, that would drive the DDI down. But that being said, we're still up against all the travel, all the game density, the time zones crossed, all that kind of thing. If we were to factor in Charlotte, which would bring the DDI down and we decided to train heavily prior to that, we would have a window of trainability, yes, but we would go into that game not as fresh, maybe lose that game. You don't have the week to respond and to bounce back for the following game. You have one extra day. So just a little decision like that or a little uh, factor that we removed from that, we thought was more productive in terms of how we were going to apply loads, stimulus, whatever it may be.
0: Yeah, I think that it's definitely still going to be something that I use in this space. And I think it's going to be, like I mentioned, it's going to be um, a more effective tool during the non-conference schedule just because of how different our schedule will look. But I, I think that there's even going to be um it's going to be helpful in the conference schedule because like i mentioned we'll still have random tuesday games where we have to travel to especially when we join the big 12 like who knows we might have to travel on tuesday to orlando which like and then play uh two games on the weekend so that would that would be pretty um crazy i was just going to say like i feel like in
2: the college sector like the precedence for sports science is going to change so much just because with all the conference realignment, you're just going to like have so much more travel, so much more chronic fatigue that it's going to be like so di- difficult to use past data to try to guess anything, especially if you're, you know, UCLA, you know, soccer traveling to Rutgers to play in New Jersey, you know, during the middle of the week and then having to travel back and play whoever the fuck on the weekend, you know? So wild. all over the place.
1: And I think as well with, with a consistent microcycle, whether it's Australian rules football that I worked in first time or Hans, whether when you get to you know conference play, the massive, massive advantage of having a consistent microcycle is that you can measure responses relative to the previous week, the previous month, aggregate of the season, what have you. That's a huge advantage. A lot of the time, whenever we're collecting any data, whether it's subjective or objective, we're always trying to determine, is that a meaningful change? And you know, there's ton of different ways and we don't need to go down that rabbit hole for determining significant change or meaningful change. But when you have a consistent microcycle of match day plus two, match day plus three, match day minus two, and so on, you can compare those to previous match day plus twos, previous match day minus twos to determine what is the response relative to those previous somewhat normal conditions. And that was another reason why we wanted to do, wanted to implement the DDI or just have that running in the background. So if we had a DDI of five, okay, every game that has a DDI of five, what do we do prior to that? What do we do after that? When we have a practice day and the DDI on a practice day is a three, is it reasonable for us to maybe say, hey, coaches, we can get after him a little bit because of X, Y, and Z. Now, we didn't get to that point, but that was definitely in the, in the thought process behind the development of the DDI in the first place.
0: Yeah, I think running in the background is a great way to put it because it, maybe down the line kind of, as you just alluded to, you get to the point where it's kind of like dictating bigger things. But I think running in the background when I used it last year um, within the G league. And then when I plan to use it this year is I'm not going to go to coach Hurley and be like, Hey, DDI is an eight. We need to cancel practice. He'll be like, yeah, no oh. way. But I think that running in the background, even if it influences the the training that I do within the weight room for guys like, Hey, our high minute guys have a DDI game t- this weekend of a nine how is my training going to look leading up to that? And then how am I going to change training after that? Kind of as you just were mentioning. But I think it's a really effective tool that was novel to me. And, and I'm definitely going to use it going forward. Yeah, for sure. I guess
2: we can jump into um, the next half. We kind of wanted to go NBA to NHL. So let's, let's jump into some of the NHL stuff. So can you just kind of take us through a um, similar question, kind of day-to-day with the Penguins, how that's kind of differed from your time with the Kings, how much your your actual hockey game has improved since you've uh, joined uh, the NHL?
0: <laughs> how many times yeah, sure. answer this first. How many times have you played hockey since joining the Penguin staff? Zero. How many have you been on have you been on skates?
1: Zero times,
0: not oh, once. Oh, Man, you gotta get out. <laughs> Days.
1: The boys are giving me a ton of pressure on it too. So my plan is to maybe get it, take an off day, and go to a rink, not you know, not in our facility, and just see what I look like. Uh, and then from there, maybe maybe get on the ice with the boys. But yeah. either way, it's not going to be good. So I've just got to accept my fate there. I think
0: skating is, I've done it probably I don't know, 10, 12 times in my life. I mean, I grew up in Alaska, so it's like a very common thing.
2: Yeah, how how did I
0: you not do it more? Just... I don't know. I don't know, but I've never, it's a skill that like has never improved. Every time I get on the ice, I'm just as bad as I was the first time. It is so, it is such a difficult skill. So to watch an NHL game or just even a freaking high school hockey game in general. And Mike, I know you're a hockey guy, whatever, like, Oh, it's not that hard, but it is a very difficult skill.
1: For sure. I mean, it's not, it's not gay, right? It's an acquired skill. It's not something that's pre-programmed like, know, crawling, standing, walking, running, it's, it's not acquired. It's sorry. It is acquired. It's not something that just has a motor program embedded in our brain when we're born.
0: For sure. I'm sorry to derail that, but I was just interested. uh, You can go ahead with your day to day with penguins.
1: Yeah, sure. So the general, um, the general schedule is very similar, right? Because our schedule is 82 Mm -hmm. games, six months. We basically run in tandem with the NBA we're constantly seeing NBA teams coming in or coming out of the same buildings that we're coming in and out of. A lot of them are dual-purpose arenas. So um, very similar approach. Also um, oh, schedule, which yields a similar approach, but slightly different just given the game demands and everything else. But again, from a pure scheduling standpoint, very, very similar. We have pre-practice lifters. We have some post-practice lifters. We have some pre-game activation. Veterans that like to get it done pre-game, we have some post-practice. But what I will say, though, is, and, you know, we can talk more about this if you want to go down the road of kind of culture and the different differences there, but very much team-oriented in hockey. Guys um, doing similar things in the weight room, doing that shared kind of shared experiences, shared lifting, very similar programs, um, much more team-oriented, which reminds me, and it's very reminiscent of my time in the AFL as well, which was similar, right? So... NBA, you've got a roster of 15 plus two two two-ways. NHL, you've got a roster of about 22, 23 plus a few two-ways. AFL, you've got a roster of about 48. So it's kind of, I went from a huge roster in the AFL, small roster in the NBA, and then kind of a moderate-sized roster um, here in the NHL. Um, So kind of blending the two from the full-blown team approach to the full-blown individual approach in the NBA to kind of a mix of the two uh, in the NHL, but from a scheduling standpoint, very, very
0: similar. From the relational piece. Yeah. Very, very different demographics from an NBA player to an NHL player. How do you, you kind of take like a similar overarching approach to how to build buy-in build relationships, or is it kind of almost been culture shock moving into the NHL and dealing with such a different demographic?
1: Uh, both. I would say my approach for building relationships with, you know, forget sport, people, you know, like my relationship building or the process for building a relationship with someone um, doesn't change between, you know, we have a new strength coach who just started with us two days ago. My relationship building process for him was no different from a player. It's just with that strength coach, we have a ton more in common. So that kind of accelerates things. Right. But with the NBA, like, again, if I'm trying to build a relationship with one of the, an NBA player versus a hockey player, different levels of commonality in our experiences so some things take longer or some things might be very very fast Um, typically in the nhl um, we have a lot more internationals so we have on our roster we have a handful of canadians obviously we have two finnish players two swedish players Uh, we did have a czech player Um, we used to have a player from latvia like very um very heavy influence from Europe or heavy contribution from Europe as well, um, which is its own challenge. So you have a separate kind of challenge when you're trying to build a relationship with an NBA player, but it's a different, but still somewhat challenging when you're trying to build a relationship with, you know, a 32 year old ice hockey player from Russia. Right. So it's, each of them have their own kind of differences, but that's one of the most gratifying things of the job, I think is building a relationship with the people. Then that, Kind of snowballs into buy-in with what you're trying to help them with. You prescribe, you guys work together, it's a partnership, and the results come later. That's some of the most gratifying work that we do, I think, in my
2: opinion. You mostly just answer this question, but maybe there's a little bit more to add to it. But just one of the things that I dislike the most about the profession of just sports performance is um how quickly people individualize within certain sports or specialize within certain sports. You know, not football guys are football guys, basketball guys are basketball guys, whatever. And I really like talking to people who haven't done that and clearly going from different sports, different sports, different sports is something that you're now familiar with and fairly comfortable with. So, how about just like advice you might give to someone who is now in the field without um, trying to specialize for the sake of the varied experiences? And how to continually integrate themselves into environments where they might not have the background knowledge of, hey, I played that sport growing up, so I'm locked in or whatever it might be.
1: Yeah, that's a good point, too. And it's quite a contentious issue, I would say, in the sports performance world at the moment and historically. But yeah, I mean, playing the sport certainly gets you ahead of the game in terms of, you know, the lingo and the terms used and understanding the game. Self-admittedly, I didn't know a ton about NBA basketball or basketball in general once getting there. And then I leave and you have this massive appreciation, you understand the game better, um, and that makes you a better coach because I can understand the demands of the sport better. Same thing with hockey. I might have watched 10, maybe less, hockey games before I started with the Penguins, but I truly believe this as well, that there is an advantage to that, that you can take an unbiased look at the demands of the game, the demands of the sport, and just appreciate it for what it is from a pure physical standpoint. And then the knowledge of the game, the rules, um, the different tactics, that kind of thing, that can come later. That can be learned. But I kind of draw a similarity to if I was to go back to Australia and work in a similar kind of role in Australian rules football, I played Australian rules football my entire life, from when I was five years old to you know, 25, 26 years old. So I'm very, very biased in my thinking towards what I think is required. Someone never played AFL before, they come in, they appraise the sport for what it is, they probably get something different than what I would come up with from a demand standpoint. So all that to say, I think advice that I would give to someone uh, is probably twofold. Firstly, your philosophy, have a philosophy that's not tied to a sport, right? Have a philosophy that uh, is, for example, my personal philosophy is understand the demands of the game the best you possibly can and prepare for that. It's, it's for me, it's really that simple, right? And now obviously you can get into the weeds in terms of breaking it down into bioenergetics, biodynamics, biomechanics, which is my approach, but the philosophy, whether I'm working with, you know, under, under 16s lacrosse or I'm working with, you know, NHL hockey, that philosophy can still be applied. And then the second part of that question as well, and this is quite fresh for me because I made this mistake myself, but, just watch and listen and just listen to the performance problems that arise. Don't come in with a predetermined set of problems that you think are there. Just watch, listen to the problems and just don't assume the problems are the same sport to sport. Because a lot of the problems I spent a lot of time working with in the NBA, I assumed were going to be similar problems in the NHL, not the case, not the case whatsoever. And I learned that quite quickly. And now, it's, it's much more of that listening as opposed to proactively um, saying, okay, this is going to be a problem. I'm going to stay ahead of this when it, it really held no relevance when I got here.
2: It's very interesting. Yeah, I love that answer. What, what What are some of those kind of problems that you assumed you would kind of run into and then ended up not and then having to deal with new ones?
1: Yeah, so I think some of the problems were around... Um programming and and Hunt, you kind of touched on this earlier, but my programming approach with X needs, loaded X needs, and then the lift itself, we don't do loaded X needs here, which is we can touch on that a little bit uh a little bit later if you want. But I just assumed that the process in which I applied that stimulus or applied the weight room stimulus to the players that I did in the NBA, I assumed that because I had scheduled it and i had planned it and applied it a certain way in the nba because that was an issue when i got there that, that was also going to be an issue when i got here so tried to introduce a similar system didn't work quickly pivoted after you know after about a month and it worked much better following that so again i assumed that there was going to be an issue with tissue specific loading came in with a plan to address that that wasn't really an issue or that Approach wasn't necessarily required because we could get that tissue specific loading in a different time frame or at a different point in time that was already built into the schedule that I was not even aware of. So again, if I listened to the problems, that wouldn't, that wouldn't have arisen. That wouldn't have came up and I could have spent my time on something different.
0: That's interesting because I remember that those last couple of days that you were with the Kings and we were kind of like talking about your role. We were talking about the loaded X needs and we were talking about how, the system that you were doing with the kings and how you were trying to transition it to what it would look like in the nhl so to get a little bit more clarification on that question you kind of scrapped that whole system and didn't really focus on specific tissue loading or you just found a new place to use it within the day as opposed to pre-lift
2: correct pause real quick next needs being what exactly before we jump into that answer yeah
1: so good idea i'll cover that so Kind of how I I bucket everything that I do with a player into three different buckets. There's X needs, loaded X needs, and then the lift. So X needs meaning what is that player's extra needs or what's their individual needs beyond their sport? Um, so X needs are typically what people would call correctives, their mobility and stability deficits. They might arise from you know weird anthropometrics, from injury history. These are things that can be completed on a daily basis, really high frequency. You can do these every single day. Um, in fact, I would encourage that they get completed as frequently as possible, right? For a, for a basketball player, you know, your classic ankle dorsiflexion, internal rotation deficits, that kind of thing. If we go down to the next tier, loaded X needs. Can't quite apply it as frequently because now we're starting to load tissues and introduce load, something that's going to require a lot more adaptive energy to adapt to. So LXN or loaded X needs, are what are those individuals' uh, requirements for specific tissue loading? Now, that can take into account, again, the individual's injury history, but also the demands of the sport play a huge role. So in basketball, in NBA specifically, because the frequency of court work is so high, tendons, you know, your mind goes automatically to tendons. So we went deep on the research. We said, okay, we need to frequently, or this is how frequently we want to hit... Um, you know, quad work or tendon work, heavy loading, isometric loading, whatever that loading may be. So targeted tissue loading, whether that's some seated leg extension, whether that's some bent leg or straight leg calf raise, uh, they were quite frequently the loaded X needs applied to the the basketball players that I worked with. Again, less frequent than X needs, but more frequent than a traditional lift. And that was something we applied team-wide. And then you've got the traditional lift, which is you know, your bigger rocks, the trap bars, the you know, the, the push-pull hinge, that kind of thing. So when we apply that system, or when I came to the NHL, again tried to apply that system, quickly found out it didn't work because what the vast majority of our players do is they do their loaded X needs or their specific tissue loading as part of their pregame warm-up. I've never seen more elaborate. Uh, diligent, intentional pre-game warm-ups than in the NHL. Some of these guys are warming up the exact same way for 40 minutes and they do everything to the minute, to the tee. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing. There's, uh, there's localized, you know, there's thermogenesis, there's mobility, there's stability, there's local tissue loading, there's global movement patterns, they introduce velocity, they introduce speed. It's amazing. Oh. and that ticks off that lXn box and we play 82 games a season so that takes care of my frequency so now there's no requirement for that wow so that's kind of that's yeah. kind of the, the quick story uh, of how that kind of you know, of how that kind of was born um, my original thought around the lXn for hockey players so if we shift less of a reliance in hockey far far less than NBA on stretch short cycle movement stretch short cycle capabilities massive demand on, the hip external rotators on the adductors huge on the adductors and massive on the lower rectus abdominis as well and we can get into the stride biomechanics as well and why that's the case but those were the boxes that I originally planned for loaded x needs again those boxes were ticked in all these pre game warm ups and if there was a player that didn't have that box ticked it's a quick little hey let's let's just throw this into your pre game warm up or your pre practice warm up hey every time we practice let's do this and then that ticks that box. And that's another thing that is kind of on autopilot throughout the season. I don't have to worry about that anymore. And if we need to increase the dose or decrease the dose, then it's just a matter of, okay, every second game or every third game or, hey, just two games a week. And then it becomes, you know, you can use the game as your north star for frequency. Really interesting. I don't want to take a complete uh, credit for the the concept of X needs and load X needs. That was something that... Um, hunts you would know jazz dr jazz randawa at the kings um that was kind of his original implementation and then i kind of took a few things took a lot from him and learned a lot from him and implemented a few variations of that awesome
0: maybe within that similar realm like you mentioned the um well we talked about obviously just below the X needs we talked about um some of like the force play and game data that you got in the nba how does your player monitoring in the NHL look specifically? Are you still jumping guys on plates? Do you still have on slash catapult slash whatever to monitor games? What is kind of like your approach and player monitoring in that whole realm look like from like a training and a load perspective?
1: Sure, sure. So if we start with the training standpoint, um, we do complete counter movement jumps. We typically do that on a frequency of once every 10, probably seven to 14 days actually, once every one to two weeks. Um, That's something that, I mean, given the validity of a CMJ, the ease of implementation of a CMJ, um, my own personal depth of knowledge with the CMJ as well. um, It's a really easy test to administer, really easy, well, there's no real coaching required outside of the Akimbo hands. We do that every 7 to 10 days to monitor the same things, right? We monitor RSI. We monitor power outputs. We monitor impulses and flight times. Equally as much asymmetries, though. So NBA players, they jump for a living, really good jumpers, much more consistent jumpers. Metrics, uh, coefficients of variation, much tighter, right? Jump height, sometimes 3%, 3 to 5%. NHL guys, these CVs are massive, oh. comparatively so. For a couple reasons firstly because jumping is not a part of their sport bilateral jumping far from their sport so it's it's reasonably novel for them comparative to the nba and second to that as well these guys get banged up on on a daily basis both in practice and in games they get banged up so there is constant little um compensations taking place that can manifest and count a movement jump in a multitude of different ways. One of the ways that we've seen is asymmetries. Asymmetry can vary a whole lot. So we asked this player, okay, you know, look, you know, Johnny, your asymmetry is gone from 10% one way to 15% the other way to the right side. So, like, oh yeah, I, I, I took a puck off my shin. It's like, okay, someone just shot a puck at 90 miles an hour and it hit him right in the lateral malleolus. That's probably going to affect my jump as well. So, I know I'm getting a little off tangent here, but that also kind of creates a larger demand for agility in the weight room as well. So we've got plan A. Let's say it's a trap bar deadlift, trap bar squat. Okay, this guy comes in. This one ankle is like a softball. Okay, we've got to pivot. What's the stimulus we're after in the first place? What's plan B? Still can't do that. Tons of pain. Okay, what's plan C? Okay, plan D, we're going to scrap it today. We're going to try tomorrow. So there's much more on-the-fly changes that take place after a hockey game than after a basketball game. Yeah, after a basketball game, you like, you know, maybe your big guys are sore because they've been banging for the past, you know, 40 minutes. But nothing compared to nothing compared to what these guys go through.
2: Yeah. What a
0: what a violent- is there is there a
2: test um, that, is there a test that you do that does have the consistency like in the weight room that uh, like the counterman jump does for the NBA? Is there is there yeah. something for the NHL?
1: 100%. So yeah, to, sorry, to finish that part of the question is we also, um, we do force frame adduction and abduction, squeeze and push testing. We do that on a similar uh, time frame or a similar frequency. Um, obviously, given that it's isometric, it's much more stable in nature uh, comparatively to a dynamic task like a CMJ. But uh, Given how important the adductor muscle group is for skating and in the skating stride, that's something we want to keep an eye on. Uh, there's a little bit of research out there as well to suggest that um, changes both in the ratio of abduction to adduction, uh, changes in the asymmetry or the symmetry, sorry, between left and right in the bilateral squeeze task uh, and also the absolute number, the Newtons and the torque, um, that that could potentially lead or that can influence injury risk of that area. Um, so for us, we figured that was pretty good low-hanging fruit to uh, to attack as well. But as you, as you um, asked, Mike, much more stable on those force frame squeeze tests. And that's something from a, uh, a weight room standpoint that we tend to monitor.
0: If you have a test that has, that has larger variation, so uh, CMJ and the NHL, does it begin to lose its validity? Would a CMJ with an NBA player be more valid to notice changes in metrics and make changes based off those metrics because of the limited variability that you have?
1: That's correct. Yeah, that's correct. So to correct to an extent. So let's say we have an NBA athlete where his coefficient of variation is 3%. So if he has an improvement of 5%, we can be pretty confident that that's a real change. Awesome. Whereas if we have an NHL player and his jump height coefficient of variation is 11%, that's a lot of noise test to test day to day. So even though, let's say he has a jump height Increase of fifteen percent from a statistical standpoint. Yeah, we can say that uh, that is a meaningful change because he's exceeded that coefficient of variation. But just in the in the sense that that coefficient of variation is so high for such a traditionally stable metric, alarms go off in my head a little bit to say, okay, this is probably not the best test, or this is not as valid of a test. And jump light is typically one of the most stable metrics. I mean, you start going down the rabbit hole of uh, RFD, force at minimum displacement stiffness, um, eccentric deceleration impulses, these kind of metrics, um, they get noisier and noisier, 20, 30% coefficient of variation. It's like, okay, if something's varying a third of its entire number on a test to test basis, how can I trust that to make any decision, let alone a significant training decision on that?
0: Yeah, that makes perfect sense.
2: What, what is the relationship and the research to, to change topics a little bit? What is the relationship and research about the um, ratio of linear running speed and linear skating speed? I know Derek Hansen does a lot of stuff in terms of skating and running, um, but have you seen much in terms of, I've always assumed it's just positive if you're a faster runner or you're a faster skater, chances are you're probably better at both. Um, what does that kind of look like for you guys?
1: Yeah, I think you nailed it, really. I mean, if you're a really fast runner, your ability to apply force into the ground quickly and in a really good direction uh, is probably correlates with skating. But the interesting thing, and I learned this very early about hockey versus, or really just skating versus gait and running, is that in running, earlier acceleration, longer contact times as you hit max speed, really short contact times. Skating is a complete opposite. So when early acceleration, short as possible, you're trying to be really choppy with your steps early on but as you get to max speed in skating there's longer strides as you apply force into the ice so it's completely the opposite and so a lot of the research that i've seen is lesser comparing uh sprint times or, or sprint performance to skating but uh, there's a little bit of work from josh who, uh who is a friend of mine from newcastle in australia he's actually related some of the the cmj metrics again another reason why we implemented the cmj a lot of CMJ metrics relating those to sprint skating performance. And funnily enough, he's seen that metrics of elasticity or short contact time being able to apply high forces like an RSI mod or a flight time to contraction time ratio correlates quite well to early acceleration in skating where there's those choppy steps required where you need to turn those over quite quickly, apply force fast. Whereas some of the um, metrics of a, a squat jump, For example, performance in squat jump, impulse in a squat jump relates better to the higher speeds in skating where there's larger contact times in the skating. So it's unsurprising, um, but that is a kind of a a reason as to why we've implemented squat jumps and counter movement jumps in our sport. Because we can start to, um, if we can move the needle on, say, RSI mod or flight time contraction time, same thing. Then we can be more confident that that's going to have a carryover effect to early acceleration, if that's what that player needs. Hmm. And we've com- just like yeah, with sprinting yeah, as well, sprint. we're just talking about biodynamics there. We haven't even talked about the biomechanics or the angle in which you apply that force into the ice, or the angle at which you apply the force when you're
2: sprinting. How, how, do you use it on the ice with the guys skating? We
1: do in very specific uh, RTP. Uh, sections we don't do it with our healthy guys just because it's quite it can be quite a potent stimulus especially if you're starting to do resisted sprinting and that kind of thing. Um, if I was in more of a collegiate environment or an environment with a microcycle where we'd have more time between games, I would 100% implement it on a weekly basis. Um, but for us with the healthy guys, I mean they're already skating anywhere between four and six days a week um, it's and playing obviously 3.25 games a week on average last season. It's just a stimulus that we what, don't. Like,
2: What's like an example of like an RTP where you are using on the ice with, with somebody?
1: Yeah. So last season we had a player that had um, quite a significant adductor strain, grade two adductor strain. Um, the one of the biggest metrics that we take from just doing a simple sprint reasonably unloaded with the 1080 is the left to right stride symmetry and how they apply force into the ice and also power, where their peak power occurs, and how that progresses across the RTP. Especially when the limb speed or when you get further up to speed or increase your speed. Um, And this is a great time to touch on the mechanics of the skate. So the propulsion stride, or to propel yourself, it's abduction, abduction, external rotation, and extension of the hip. And to bring that uh, limb back to recover from that stride or stride recovery is internal rotation, adduction, and flexion to bring it back. And it's just rinse and repeat. Okay. So as we, and this is another reason why we introduced or why the force frame is something that we hold quite a lot of stock in as well. So sprint speed is correlated quite highly to hip abduction velocity, angular velocity as well. Makes a ton of sense. The faster you can push and abduct that hip out, the more force you can push out with, you know, the faster and the more power you can push with, so on and so forth. But if you can propel yourself in that propulsion stride of abduction, external rotation extension, that's really powerful. But you don't have the rate of force development and the eccentric strength to catch that limb once it rises off the ice and recover it and bring it back. Then that's when adductor issues, um, sports hernia issues, rectus abdominis issues, Uh, If you're overextended, if you get a lot of lumbar extension and you're really stressing the anterior part of the hip, that's when issues start to arise. So, again, that's why some of the ratios between adduction and abduction are really important because if you're taking hundreds of strides, thousands of strides a week and your propulsion stride is faster than your recovery, that's going to cause some issues over time.
0: Mm.
1: So for us, like in australian rules football soccer where there's a hamstring issue or hamstring epidemic per se hamstring issues continue to rise kind of the adductors are uh, they're kind of the the issue for us or they're for skating and hockey in general you know yeah the adductors are other hamstrings for us
2: i've always thought about like with the 1080 on ice i've never actually done it but doing like like on sprinting you can just set like a variable resistance like start heavy get to light as you get to a certain speed I was about like using the opposite for skating, whereas like your acceleration, it's like it'd be really hard to get going in a heavy acceleration. Whereas like where you start light, get to heavy as you get to speed. I thought there might be like some value to it, but I've never actually done it. So,
1: yeah, we haven't we haven't touched that part either. To be honest with you, Mike, and it's look it's it certainly has some value when I think through it in my mind. When we if we would to you know run a trial, profile everyone, introduce some sort of um, bucketing. Where we put guys into different yeah. buckets, different stimuli to improve that. Um, that certainly sounds, you know, sounds valid in my mind. We just haven't
0: haven't got to that. Are you you anything? No, I'm good. Let's let's hit him with the let's hit him with the last question because I got a group coming in in a little bit. Mm-hmm. So we'll hit you with our with our our last question that we ask every guest. So what is what is something that you do or think that a majority of the sports performance field would disagree with?
1: Oh man, that's a good question. That's a good question. Look, I would say we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier and you guys asked a good question pertaining to this as well, but I think being a generalist makes you a better practitioner. I think spending your entire life in one sport or one one league or one scenario can be seen as specializing and becoming an expert, but from my personal experience, that's that's not the case. My personal experience is, okay, take what I thought worked in Australian rules football, on ground, massive running demand, apply that to basketball. Okay, so I'm going to tweak that. Certain things worked, certain things didn't. I'm going to take that for sure. Take those experiences to ice hockey, not even on ground, on ice, not even gate, it's skating, completely different. Taking certain things from AFL, taking certain things from the NBA, trying it, failing, trying something else having a good result. I think that ultimately that generalistic approach or being a T-shaped you know, practitioner ultimately makes you better. I do not think that specialization is the answer. And you know that might not be something that a lot of people disagree with. I know some people will, but I hope that answers the question.
0: No, well, I think that's a great, uh, I a great that. now I based off that answer, I probably know the answer to this question, but do you think that if you were to go back and do an MBA job, you would be better off because of what you've learned in your time in the NHL?
1: For sure, 100%. Interesting.
0: That's yeah. awesome. Well, Jesse, I wish we could keep going because I would love to do a, a another counter-movement jump deep dive with you and talk about metrics yeah, in the next is. three hours, but maybe we'll have to have you on again to just do a total deep dive sports science. counter-movement jump. Yeah, counter-movement jump only episode. No, but we would love to have you back on down the line um, because I think that well, I know that you're a wealth of knowledge um, and di- digging digging into some of that nitty gritty stuff within the more sports science realm um, like we touched on today would be awesome.
1: Be happy to. Thanks for having me, fellas. This was fun.
2: Thank you guys for listening to the episode. Find us on social media at MTN underscore perform. And another shout out to our episode sponsor, Lumen Sports. To find out more about Lumen or to download a free demo, head to lumensports.com or head to the show notes. See you guys next week.